Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I am not joined this week by Zach Davis. Zach, I'm afraid, is sick. And listener, you can't see me, but there were definitely some air quotes around sick right there. But no, kidding. Zach assures me he has splayed out on the couch and couldn't possibly make it to a recording today. So I am taking over, and we still have a great episode for you this week. We're talking to Brittany Barnett. Brittany's an attorney, a criminal justice reform advocate, and author of the new book, A Knock at Midnight, A Story of Hope, Justice, and Freedom. Brittany has been working for years to get people released from prison who have been sentenced under unjust sentencing guidelines to life without parole for first-time drug offenses. You know, she's working against incredible odds and yet maintains this sense of hope. And it's it was such a pleasure to talk to her, especially this week. Saturday, June 19th is, is Juneteenth. It's the holiday that celebrates the emancipation of people who had been enslaved in the United States. That quest for freedom is one that Brittany is carrying on today through her work in the criminal justice system. So I'm sure you are going to enjoy our conversation with her. But first, a few words about our sponsor this week. This week, we are excited to share some news. Our sponsor, The Great Courses Plus, is now Wondrium. And Wondrium offers wonderful video and audio learning experiences, including everything you knew and loved about The Great Courses Plus, but so much more. That includes new partnerships with groups like National Geographic, Smithsonian History, the Culinary Institute of America. So people who know their stuff and are bringing that knowledge to you. I don't know about you, but I've been kind of worried as as life returns to something like normal as as we come out of the pandemic that I've completely forgotten how to how to socialize with people and engage in small talk. What better way to get back to talking to all those people you've missed over the past year than with some exciting new information you've learned from Wondrium. Personally, I started listening to the This Day in History program where each day in like between five and 10 minutes, they'll tell you a cool historical event that happened on that day. So if you're listening to this on Friday, it is the anniversary of the Battle of Waterloo. And something I learned that just was a complete shock to me. I can't believe I didn't know this. So that was the battle when Napoleon was finally defeated. And he wanted to get exiled to the United States and was unable to. But his brother, Joseph, did make his way to the United States and settled in New Jersey. So he's just, you know, down the road from me. <laughs> and where he used to live is now where Ocean Spray makes cranberry juice. 
So you can learn fun facts like that and so much more by signing up for Wondrium. And listeners of this show have a very special offer. You can get a 14-day free trial of unlimited access to Wondrium by going to wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash Jesuitical for a 14-day free trial of Wondrium and all the mind-blowing programs they have to offer. So once again, that's wondrium.com slash Jesuitical. Make sure to put Jesuitical in there so they know we sent you. And now stick around for our conversation with Brittany Barnett. Joining us from Dallas, Texas, is Brittany Barnett. She is an attorney, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of A Knock at Midnight, A Story of Hope, Justice, and Freedom. Welcome to Jesuitical, Brittany. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, uh, really fantastic book, uh, and we're excited to, to dive into your story. I'm hoping we can start with kind of what seems to be the inspiration for the kind of work you are doing now, which was the experience your mother had with the criminal justice system. Could you start there and tell us a little bit about her story? Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in rural East Texas, a small town with lots of family, extended family. You know, we had a really amazing childhood. I do want to say, I just like love the parts of your book where you reflect on like how loving your family was. And that really does come through. Thank you. I was very intentional about that. I wanted to really show this unconditional love that I received from my family through good times and bad times. And for my mom, I mean, my mom is amazing. She was going to nursing school and We definitely had a happy childhood, except that my mom developed a very severe drug addiction. And her drug addiction ultimately led to her going to prison. She was what you would call functioning for several years. But when I was 22 years old, she she went to prison. And it was eight years, right? Yes, she was sentenced to eight years, mostly for what I would call probation violations, technical violations, 100% from failed drug tests. And it was very difficult for me to reconcile my mother going to prison because she had an addiction and she wasn't getting the help or rehabilitation she needed. Instead, she was punished. And during this period, you're in college, right? Or just, just graduated? Yes, I'm in college. I had just the year before I had gotten a bachelor's degree in accounting and my mother was sentenced to prison two months before I got my master's degree in accounting. And so she wasn't there. And no matter what, throughout my mother's addiction, she was always present. Now, some of the like really painful parts of the book are your descriptions of trying to visit her in prison. And can you maybe just like illustrate that a little bit for our listeners? Absolutely. It is so true what they say when one person goes to prison, the entire family goes to prison. And I experienced that firsthand when my mother was incarcerated. I'll never forget the very first visit with her in prison. And she had been in the county jail for several months. And so there's no contact visits in the county jail. And I could not wait 
to get to the prison to see my mama and to touch her, to hug her, to smell her because we could get contact visits at the prison. And I drove two and a half hours from Dallas to the prison, ready to see my mom. And I walk in the prison visitation room and I was told we could not get a contact visit because she had not been at the prison for 60 days yet. So we had another visit through the glass. And anyone who's ever visited anyone in prison through the glass knows just how deceptive that glass can be. It's like you're right in front of the person you're there to visit, but you might as well be on another planet. And I remember taking the phone and just pressing it so hard against my face because I did not want to miss the sound of my mama's voice. Yeah. And I think it's important to reiterate that this is a punishment for what is an, an addiction, what is ultimately a you know, I think a lot of us have come to see with the opioid epidemic, a health crisis, a mental health crisis, a physical health crisis. This is not anything close to what rehabilitation would look like. So how did, I don't know, <laughs> how did we get to the point where we're treating treating addiction like this? It's a great question. You know, we have become addicted to incarceration in this country, you know, and my mother served two and a half years in prison and became sober. She's been home for 13 years now and still sober, doing amazing. She actually works as a nurse for a drug recovery center. But I am adamant when I say that my mother, Evelyn Fulbright, became sober despite of prison, not because of it. And I want to be very clear about that because it does not take prison to be rehabilitated from drug addiction. You know, we we have to stop punishing addiction in this country. Now, eventually you end up in law school and you start coming across a number of cases where people similar to your mother's situation that have no criminal records but are sentenced to even longer than eight years, right? To to life in prison for for drug charges. And I'm wondering if you could just quickly explain, because the prison system is so out of sight, out of mind for so many people, what minimum sentencing requirements are and you know, when did they start and what the effects been? I was in law school and I took a critical race theory course. And in that course, we were analyzing the intersection between race and the law. And I decided to write my paper on this 100 to 1 sentencing disparity between powder cocaine and crack cocaine at the federal level. And this 100 to 1 sentencing disparity was implemented through the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act. And it was implemented along with mandatory minimum sentencing, among other things. And what that 100 to 1 ratio meant was that a person could have 500 grams of powder cocaine. I could have only five grams of crack cocaine, and we would receive the same sentence in prison. This led to a disproportionate number of people of color serving draconian sentences under federal drug laws, and many of them were sentenced to these mandatory minimums, which in many instances in federal drug cases, that mandatory minimum is 10 years, which means that no matter what that individual's circumstances are, the judge has no choice but to sentence them to at least 10 years. And this just stripped federal judges of discretion and, and in many cases rendered them powerless from the bench. So even if a judge wanted to sentence for less because he's looking at the person in front of them, he legally could not. Absolutely. 
very similar to the case of my client, Chris Young. Chris Young was 22 years old when he was arrested and ultimately sentenced to life in prison for a drug offense. I want to be clear, there is no parole in the federal system. So a life sentence is life. Chris Young grew up in just a suffocating level of poverty that no child in America should have to endure. And he was facing a mandatory life sentence for a drug offense. And the federal judge in his case, Judge Kevin Sharp, did not want to hand down the life sentence. But he had no choice. His hands were tied. He spoke out from the bench, Judge Sharp, of how the sentence that he was having to impose was was not fair. Chris Young was barely touching the totem pole in this drug case. He was very young, but Judge Sharp had no choice, and Chris Young was sentenced to life without parole. The bright side of that is Judge Sharp took a stance, and he resigned from the bench from a lifetime appointment as a federal judge in protest of cases like Chris Young's. And he began working with me on Chris Young's case. And we secured a huge freedom for Chris Young back in September of 2020. And his life sentence was reduced to 14 years. He had served 10 at the time. And with good time, he was going to have a couple of years left to serve. And gratefully, Chris Young was granted immediate release in January through executive clemency by President Trump. Wow. I mean, we want to get into some more of these these stories and, and this idea of clemency. But I want to like stay here real quick because I think that in the modern imagination, this war on drugs or this like era of when we, you know, overly incarcerated people for for stuff like this is something that happened and it's and it's over with now. Could you say what actually is happening and what has and has not changed for people? The war on drugs is still alive and in full effect. It is certainly an utter failure that has not only devastated lives and entire communities, but it's cost this country billions of taxpayer dollars. We are in a time where we see that more and more Americans are realizing that the criminal justice system is flawed in its design, and we have to completely transform the system. And so we see laws changing. We saw the First Step Act passed in 2018 under President Trump that rolled back some of these mandatory minimums that we're talking about. The unfortunate part about that that I learned during this work is many times when we see these laws pass, and it takes years to get them to pass, many times they're not made retroactive. So a major problem we see still as it relates to the war on drugs is that we have people serving life sentences today under yesterday's drug laws. I mean, how would you explain that disconnect where it seems I think a lot of people sometimes equate like the law with justice? And if our notions of what is, you know, just has changed and the law has changed, but that isn't reflected to what someone, you know, was sentenced 10 years ago. How do we justify that disconnect? We can't. What happens is when you get into these very heated and debated discussions in Congress and you have to get both parties to agree, freedom, unfortunately, becomes a matter of convenience and compromise. And many times retroactivity is dropped as a compromise to get both parties to agree. 
And I just feel we have to get to the point where we put people over politics. You mentioned one of your clients already, but this moment where you your first client is Sharonda Jones, you come across her case in law school. Could you just like talk about what it was like to to learn about her and her story a little bit? As I was writing this paper about the 100 to 1 sentencing disparity between powder cocaine and crack cocaine while I was a law student, I was talking about the law, the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act, the lack of legislative history that was there when the law was passed. But I wanted more in my paper. I think after experiencing the incarceration of my mom, it just brought me so proximate to this issue of mass incarceration. And I wanted the heartbeats. I wanted real stories of real people to illustrate how these laws are burying people alive. And I was in the law library one night and did a Google search. I'm not kidding. I just Googled like woman federal prison life sentence or something like that. And the case of Sharonda Jones popped up. Sharonda Jones was a lot like me. She was a black daughter of the rural South like me. She had this country accent and she was unfortunately serving her 10th year of a life without parole sentence for a first time drug offense. Sharonda Jones had never been in any trouble before, felony or otherwise. She had never even received a traffic ticket before, and she had gotten convicted of a federal drug conspiracy. There was just something about Sharonda's case that tugged at my soul. I wanted to do what I could to help her. I was on a track to go practice corporate law. I was an accountant. It was a natural gravitation for me. I knew next to nothing about criminal law, but I sent her a card and I told her I was a law student and that I wanted to help her get out of prison. You eventually do that, but you kind of have to move. You, you sort of have to go outside the law to do this in a certain sense, right? Because there, it seems like you you did not have any avenues in the criminal justice system as we understand it. So what what, what was the last option on the table? Yes, I worked for years on Sharonda Jones's case, trying to find avenues of relief for her through the court. And as I mentioned, the laws were starting to change, but they weren't retroactive. And it wasn't making a lot of sense to me because I'm thinking, well, if the law is wrong today, it was wrong yesterday. And, you know, I just began to feel a little defeated about that. I started to realize that as lawyers, we are oftentimes forced to work within the bounds of laws that are outside the bounds of moral consciousness. And then I learned about executive clemency from the president. And I learned that the Constitution grants sole exclusive authority to the president of the United States to grant executive clemency to people in federal prison. And clemency, there's two forms of it. There's commutations, that reduces a person's sentence and there's pardons that fully forgives the person of the crime. And I began to research this whole notion of clemency and what it was. And I pretty much came to the conclusion to me that clemency is where justice meets mercy. And it was the last bite at the apple to be able to save Sharonda Jones's life. And one thing that comes through with Sharonda's story is I guess just the arbitrary nature of who gets mercy. You know, you happen to Google those words and heard 
name came up and you happen to be passionate about this and work for years to do it. And then in other, you describe in other cases, you know, like someone like Kim Kardashian gets involved, sees someone's case and, you know, <laughs> pleads on their behalf to the president. But that's so arbitrary and it's, that can't be the solution for everyone. How do you think about that tension between like something, you know, it's obviously great that Kim Kardashian got involved and was able to secure this person's release, but does it, you know, kind of distract us from the structural deeper issues? That's a great question. And as a lawyer, having to fight zealously for my client, one, you know, I don't have the privilege to be partisan because my clients don't care who who lets them out, you know, and it is something that I think about often because I represent a lot of people and I have represented Sharonda Jones. And as you mentioned, you know, I've worked with Kim Kardashian on Alice Johnson's case and Kim Kardashian's support was welcome. You know, I'm grateful that she used her platform to shine a light on this issue that has existed for years. You know, it's not like this you just came about, but I agree. Like it should not take an influencer or celebrity to ensure that a person is granted freedom when they are unjustly sentenced. And we have to get to a point in this country where it doesn't take that because the general public is calling for these laws to change. The general public is holding elected officials accountable to ensure a fair legal system for all. Definitely, it's a very nuanced line that I had to walk and and many lawyers have to walk. I feel like this is something I've fallen into where whenever I read about a problem that's like this big, right? That the whole system needs fixed. And I look at, well, I can't fix the system. And therefore, it's easy to kind of just (laughs) do nothing. And I think that's something that a lot of young people like get disillusioned with quickly in politics and things like this. I'm wondering how you've been able to you know, as you're in your own vocation, say, okay, you know, I'm going to chip away at the system, but like my work is, is the people in front of me and what I can do for them. Yeah. I came to realize that it took centuries of deliberate action to get us here. And it's going to take a lot of work to get us to true transformation. And It's so overwhelming, as you mentioned, because so much needs to be done. There's so much work to do. It could be debilitating to even think about. And for me, I found that I have to focus on a specific niche. And that niche for me is focusing on people who are unjustly sentenced under these federal drug laws. And also focusing on women and girls who've been impacted by maternal incarceration, because these are are both very personal experiences for me. I'm wondering if I could get your thoughts just more generally on, I know you work on particularly drug cases, but I I oftentimes feel like we're, as a country, sort of not looking at the whole picture and the bigger discussion that needs to be had where people are generally fine with if you go up to a random person on the street and say shouldn't we this person was a nonviolent drug offender shouldn't we left them out but 
at a certain point, we're also going to have to look at the over-incarceration rates of of violent crimes, non-drug offenses, right? Does that seem like way further off to you? Or, or are there any conversations that we need to be having right now, you know, as a society to get us closer to some idea where we are more merciful or just, or we have a more restorative idea of what rehabilitation looks like? Yeah, I think that it is definitely within reach. You know, I, for one, and very careful not to use this nonviolent, violent distinction. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very divisive. And quite frankly, in many of the state laws and federal, what actually constitutes a violent crime per statute? Is it really a crime of violence? You know, it's so subjective. I feel you are absolutely right. We have to have holistic conversations about people in general who are over incarcerated in this country, over-sentenced. Part of it is thinking about how do we reimagine what justice looks like in this country to help open hearts and minds and help people develop empathy. And a lot of that is is helping us become desensitized to this. Like I think even in terms of sentences, we throw around 15, 20-year sentences like it's $15, $20. And it's a very long time. My mother served two and a half years in prison and it felt like forever. You know, you used the phrase earlier describing people with life sentences as buried alive. And it reminded me of something that Pope Francis has has said. He he calls a life sentence without parole a secret death penalty. And you and I think I don't know, I had this like sort of glimmer of hope that maybe after this year of being in lockdown in which many people described it as like being in prison, that there might be that opening for some more empathy for just how draconian the length of these sentences are. Do you do you have any similar hope? I definitely have hope. I have to wake up every day holding on to some type of hope to be able to continue to do this work because it is so heavy. And every day I find new joy and new hope, whether it's having a legal call with the client and hearing him laugh or smile, you know, just at the thought that someone's helping or whether it's having a conversation with Sharonda Jones as she's working through getting ready to launch her food truck, you know, definitely I I think that there's a lot of hope there. I'm wondering if you have any ideas or thoughts about how, you know, are there any practical ways that people who because I feel like when most people generally encounter this issue, they're pretty like, I don't know, flabbergasted and angry and they don't know where to start to in advocating for for justice. Um, are, are there any like practical things that people who might be listening to this can start doing? Yes, absolutely. We live in an information age. So I think one of the first steps is is education, you know, educating ourselves about what is happening here? Criminal justice reform is a hot topic right now. It's fashionable, it's popular, but I'm always still amazed at how little people know about how the system actually works. So being able to educate ourselves, being able to ensure that we are voting for elected officials who are adamant about transforming the criminal legal system and that we hold them accountable once they're in office, but also looking around at local organizations who are already doing the work. There are so many organizations doing great work on shoestring budgets. 
who need volunteers, who need help with strategic vision or, or fundraising or programming, but they're right there in our backyards, you know? And so I always recommend that people reach out and volunteer with their local organizations during the work and ensure that at least one of those organizations allow you the opportunity to visit a prison. It is a perspective shattering experience to be able to visit with people in prison. And with the work that we do with the Buried Alive Project, the nonprofit I have, we work to provide pro bono legal representation for people serving life sentences. And we work with people across the country to even put together reentry packages, you know, for people coming out of prison. So there's always something to be done and we don't have to come up with a new way. You know, there are organizations who've been doing this work for years uh, under-resourced. Yeah, which you have been doing for years. And I'm wondering how, what practices you you take to to maintain this this hope you have. It, it sounds like such demanding grueling, at times heartbreaking work. And I'm just, I really would love to know how you take care of your own mental or spiritual well-being. Yeah, that's a really great question. And it's something that I try to be intentional about because the work is so heavy and so inundating at times. You know, it's like taking three steps forward with passing the first step out and then four steps backwards with the Supreme Court decision this week in the Terry case. What was that Supreme Court decision, just really quickly? for It was a United States versus Terry that was decided on June 14th, and it basically restricted the application of the First Step Act so that low-level drug offenders do not qualify for relief under the First Step Act. Got it. Uh, sorry, I interrupted you, but you were talking about um, self-care. self-care. Yeah. <laughs> And because the work is so heavy, I try to incorporate meditation. Actually, one of my clients, Corey Jacobs, taught me how to meditate when he was in prison serving a life sentence. And I still incorporate that. Corey Jacobs is free now, thankfully. And, you know, just really working to be intentional. Of course, self-care is a practice. And so sometimes I'm stronger than others, but I definitely realize that none of us can pour from empty cups and that we had to make space for ourselves. You know, in addition to being addicted to incarceration, as you said, we are a pretty well-churched country. You write in your book about church being a place of solace and importance to you growing up, but it's also a place where people talk about things like justice and mercy all the time. And I wonder if you could just say, like, what is God's justice and what does God's mercy look like to you? The simplest way I can say what God's justice looks like to me is love. And I think that word is so simple, but so powerful and so strong, because if we upheld this value of love and unconditional love, we wouldn't be sentencing Taronda or Alice Johnson to prison for the rest of their natural lives. I feel that we really have to come to a place in this country where we center the human element, because I feel that it's often ignored, but it's necessary to drive impactful change. Well, thank you so much for the work that you've been doing and for telling us about it. We do have one final question that we ask all of our guests, and that's if you could canonize one person, uh, living or dead, Catholic or not, 
fictional or real, who would it be and why? It would be Harriet Tubman. Awesome. All right. Normally, I would tell people like, oh, tell me who, who that was. and But I think people know who she is. <laughs> Could you maybe tell us why you would like to canonize her? I adore and admire everything that she stood for through action. She was about true liberation, setting the captives free. And there is absolutely nothing more urgent than freedom. Perfect candidate for uh, this Juneteenth holiday when this will be coming out. Oh, awesome. (laughs) That's beautiful. Awesome. Well, again, Brittany, thank you so much. The book is A Knock at Midnight, A Story of Hope, Justice, and Freedom. And it really is a wonderful, wonderful book. And you can get it wherever books are sold. Is there anything else you want to plug right now? I just hope that people really start to reimagine what justice looks like in this country and what what justice means to them. Awesome. Well, that's that's the homework, everybody. (laughs) Okay. Brittany, thanks so much. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn and engineered by Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashlyn Kinless with Zach Davis, kind of, and we'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.